This is the last call for our once-per-year discount on patreon.com slash cfbwinningedge. Anyone, including current members, can sign up as an annual Tier 1 supporter and receive Tier 2 access through the 2022 college football season. This means you'd receive access to our 2022 FBS team profiles, our returning production database, and coming soon, our statistical projections database. This offer expires July 1st, 2022. Visit patreon.com slash to learn more and to sign up. Welcome back, everybody. It's CFP Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter at Bogman Sports. I'm joined, as always, by the owner and proprietor of CFP Winning Edge, Nicholas Ian Allen. Follow him on the Twitter at CFP Winning Edge and Xavier Trish at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E on the Twitter machine. And today on the show, we are continuing our uh, team preview series. We are going from 120 to 111. So we're done with bottom feeders. We have only powerhouses like Southern Miss, Akron, FIU, Rutgers, and Texas State to talk about on today's show. Uh, but look, a lot of these teams are interesting, and I feel like a big part of the reason why we get more listens on these shows than any others that we do is that it's hard to know some of these teams. So they want to step in. They want to hear what Nick has to say about them. They want to hear what Xavier has to say about them. And I'm here uh, guiding the ship through the storms. So uh, let's just dive right in here, boys, and start at 120 with Middle Tennessee. Middle Tennessee won three of its final four games, including a 31 to 24 upset victory over Toledo in the Bahamas Bowl to finish seven and six in Rick Stockstill's 16th season with the Blue Raiders, and this game was so upsetting to Nick that he tweeted about it earlier this week that he's still mad that a less talented Middle Tennessee State beat Toledo in this game because he had a little bit of cage on it, I believe. Uh, DraftKings win total for Middle Tennessee is 5.5. We have them going um, 5-7, and seven, so under that projection, and... Middle Tennessee is our lowest rated team that went to a bowl in 2021, Nick. So why are we so low on the, the Blue Raiders in 2022? This team did just make a bowl. So uh, let's hear about what we think about uh, MTSU for 2022, Nick. Yeah, so they they obviously, Middle Tennessee did make a bowl game. They've made a lot of bowl games in Rick Stockstill's tenure there. And you're right, you know, that, that it was the first bowl of the season and Toledo, our numbers have loved Toledo for a long time and they've been disappointing at times. I'll try to save my uh, Toledo spiel for a few weeks down the line, but um, yeah, Middle Tennessee was able to beat a, uh, in my estimation, the way our numbers uh, suggest, a superior opponent in that game. And, and, you know, they were really able to finish the season strong to get to bowl eligibility, but then of course uh, to finish with a winning record. So it, you know, probably is a little bit of a surprise to see them so low in our uh, power rankings. I mean, 120, you know, you, you sarcastically mentioned 
we're not really talking about bottom feeders anymore, but I mean, these are the teams that are in danger kind of on the fence of, you know, maybe they can make a run at a bowl and middle Tennessee certainly is capable. I think of doing that, especially in a, a conference USA that um, probably by most uh, metrics is the weakest conference in college football these days and at the FBS level. Uh, but still, you know, the, the biggest reason um, Middle Tennessee has fallen and, and the reason our numbers are, you know, pretty low on the Blue Raiders this year is, is you know, overall talent. In roster strength, they rank 116th overall, 121st on the offensive side of the ball, 104th defensively. And even though they have some solid pieces, I mean, you know, Jalen Lane is a playmaking wide receiver who, you know, certainly – uh, showed some real promise uh, as a sophomore last year. As a receiver, should have a, a bigger role even this year. They've got a couple of quarterbacks that, you know, had good games, had their moments. Chase Cunningham got some playing time middle of the season, got some starting experience, five games in his career. Um, had an injury that, that you know, cost him the rest of the year, but he gave way to uh, Nick Vatalato. Uh, my apologies if I butchered that name, but, um, you know, pretty talented young signal caller as a freshman was able to uh, get five games of starting experience. So, uh, you know, there there are some pieces on the offensive side of the ball there. Defensively, there is even more to like. I mean, the unit up front, Jordan Ferguson is a 100 rated player, according to our numbers. Um, he is all over the sheet that we put together on individual stat leaders. Um, you know, led them in tackles for loss, pressures, and sacks with big, big numbers, 17 and a half tackles for loss, 47 pressures and nine sacks. Um, just a, a really, really productive pass rusher and, you know, arguably the best player returning on this defense. But, you know, they have some experience um, at all three levels. You know, the, the secondary probably hit hardest by departures and and they lost a couple of starters in uh the secondary to the transfer portal but there's still there's still some talent there on on the defensive side of the ball but you know middle tennessee doesn't recruit at a super high level um obviously as a conference usa team but even within that league uh the way that we you know calculate things they're middle of the pack at best um and they've lost a lot of experience. I mean, they're 109th, rank 109th overall in returning production, 92nd on the offensive side of the ball, 103rd on the defensive side of the ball. And some of it is uh, guys graduating, guys like Jaron Pierce, wide receiver, uh, multiple starters on the offensive line, Reed Blankenship, uh, you know, big time player, long time starter, 53 career game starts at safety. Uh, but also they lost a lot of talent to the transfer portal. Three starters from last year's offensive line went to the transfer portal. Two of them had landed at uh, really, you know, pretty nice spots. One Mississippi State, one at Houston. Uh, they lost a starting linebacker to Jackson State. They lost a starting corner to Louisville. And there's another starting safety uh, still out there who, you know, has the potential, I think, to, to play um, and make an impact somewhere else in, in Gregory Great. So a lot of turnover. Um, and just, you know, working from a somewhat limited uh, talent base to begin with um, is the biggest reason why, you know, Middle Tennessee just has fallen a bit 
down our power ranking. So uh, there's there's winnable games, plenty of winnable games. I would say their first three non-conference games, James Madison, uh, James Madison, excuse me, Colorado and Tennessee State are certainly winnable. I think any matchup in Conference USA is winnable, even though they're currently a double-digit underdog against uh, UTSA and UAB, who we won't spend a whole lot of time talking about it uh, today, but we just learned that Bill Clark, head coach at UAB, uh, was forced to retire earlier this week. You know, that could perhaps uh, cause some issues with UAB being one of the more, you know, higher-ranked Conference USA teams, but um, certainly in, in after the uh, bye week, a lot of winnable games, UTEP, Louisiana Tech, Charlotte, FAU, FIU. Um, there's going to be probably a lot of one-score games. There are you know, certainly going to be some opportunities to pull up some upsets, but um, the margin for error is pretty thin, and, and right now there's not a whole lot of depth uh, on this Middle Tennessee roster. So uh, for that reason, we're under the five-and-a-half uh, win total from DraftKings, um, and you know we see – uh, you know, five and seven being that that projected final record, uh, but right now our actual projected win total is closer to four and a half. So this is certainly a team that you know, we could see slip down to that four win uh, mark. And I believe I've said it before. You know, Rick Soxill has done a lot of great things there at Middle Tennessee, um, but when you start getting into 15, 16 years. Um, it has the potential. We, we see coaches like that, you know, kind of burn out real quick. Uh, have, have had some examples of that in the past, you know, June Jones at SMU several years ago now, uh, but comes to mind, George O'Leary at UCF, just older guys who've been around a while, who've, who've done a lot of good things, but when it goes bad, it goes bad quickly. Uh, I thought in 2020, Middle Tennessee was headed that direction, and, and they rebounded, had a solid year last year. But it would not shock me if something like that were to happen, especially if they get upset early. You know, James Madison, quality program, Colorado State made a lot of improvements. You know, if they, they start out 0-2, um, there's certainly the potential that, that Middle Tennessee really could uh, fall pretty far pretty fast. There's potential that they could get back to a bowl, but there's also potential that this could, you know, develop into a – 10 loss type team. Uh, Xavier, what do you think of middle Tennessee state for 2022? Do you have more optimism than Nick does? Or are you right there with him? Well, I mean, their schedule pans out in a way that they can absolutely start pretty, pretty good. Uh, you know, you, you look at their 2022 schedule, they start with at James Madison, which is going to be a tough game. Uh, you guys know, I love to look for a barometer matchup. And I think that's an early season one that they can absolutely port towards. Uh, going to Colorado State is going to be a toughie. Let's just call it what it is. Uh, I, I think that it's going to be a tough matchup for them uh, going out to Colorado State. Um, obviously, with the altitude change as well, let's see how they're able to play there. And then you get Tennessee State. Um, I'm not going to count the Miami game because it's Miami in Miami as well. Uh, but I do think, you know, if you build up some confidence, beating some pretty good teams early on in your non-conference schedule, it could carry over. Uh, my biggest issue with them is they go right into the, the, the deep end, right? You get UTSA and UAB in your first two games. That's going into the deep end of Conference USA and, you know, having to play what would be deemed as, you know, the higher end of that conference. And for UTSA, we've seen in the past that this team genuinely, I won't say it is wholly based off of confidence, but when they, they when they lose, they lose a lot in a row. When they win, they win a couple in a row. You know, you look at last year, they lost three straight right off the bat. 
right? Losing to Virginia Tech, UTSA, and at Charlotte. Then they win a game against Marshall, which I think a lot of us were maybe a little bit surprised about. And they win three of their next four games. Then they lose, you know, two of their next three games. And it's like they never could just get a consistent patch of, you know, of winning or, you know, or losing. And that's the biggest issue that I have with Middle Tennessee is if they start off slow, it could absolutely hinder them going forward. Um, so if they do drop those early season games, which I said are very winnable, uh, in my opinion, or at the very least a toss up game, it could it could absolutely snowball for them. And you're looking at a team that, you know, after the first you know, four games could be one in three going in the conference play. And that's not, ne- and that's never a good thing when you play UTSA and UAB in Western Kentucky in your first three games. Like it's just going to be very difficult in that regard. Uh, I think the conference, I think conference USA is going to be a little bit more. Let me see how much I'm trying to say this. I think it's going to be a little bit easier to predict conference USA this year. Uh, I think conference USA ha- has, I think, a better or a more clear cut tier system this season than maybe last uh, where I think, you know, there, there are some teams absolutely at the top that aren't just UAB for once. You know, I think UTSA is a team that's going to be very good. I think UAB is up there, obviously Western Kentucky is a team that, you know, no Bailey Zappi, but I think that they're going to be a, a team to be reckoned with as well. Uh, so I think you're going to be looking at, you know, uh, where it's going to be a top tier one and then everybody else that has to kind of compete for that middle spot. And that's where middle Tennessee state is going to kind of fall into it. Um, and when you look at the recruiting trail, they were somebody that hit the transfer portal pretty hard. Uh, they had an 85 transfer rating. Uh, they had an overall ranking of a 110, which isn't great, but they only brought in 11 kids. So that's, that kind of shows you once again, when, when the university does that, not necessarily doesn't mean that they love everybody on their current roster, but it also means that they're prioritizing, you know, people who can come in and help them right away. And they definitely did that with the kids that they got and where the, and where the schools were, right? Mississippi State, Miami, Louisville, West, uh, West Virginia, excuse me, and Kansas State, just to name some of the places that these kids are coming from. And I, th- I think they're going to look for those kids to hit the ground running. Otherwise, like I said, it's going to be tough for Middle Tennessee to do it. You know, I'm not going to be as pessimistic as Nick. I don't want to start off the the podcast too pessimistic, but I I do think that Middle Tennessee has to start fast. They have to hit the ground running or like like Nick said, it could absolutely snowball. And this is a team that could, you know, look at themselves, you know, after week six, you know, at one in five and really be in trouble. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We call uh, both called on Nick for being Mr. Negativity, but he sees more upside than any one of us do. Uh, Either one of us uh, do for sure with most of these teams. Now, Moving over to number 119, takes us to the MAC. Akron uh, is 119. Akron beat Bowling Green 35 20 to pull to two and four last season, but lost the last six games to finish two and 10. Tom Arth was fired midseason, and the Zips uh, turned to former assistant Joe Moorhead as their new head coach. Their DK win total is two and a half, but we have them projected to go five and seven. This is one of the bigger. Uh, projected win uh, plus minuses that we have uh, throughout CFB winning edge here. It's a a pretty big one. Uh, So we have them obviously over the the two and a half total, but Nick, this is, um, you know, similar to UMass, New Mexico state Akron made a head coach hire that our projections expect will pull them out of the bottom three. Is this warranted or do you think maybe there's a possibility it could be too soon and, we're a little too bullish on Akron because, I mean, the way we see it, they might be one weird win away from potentially going to a bowl game here. So uh, why are we, uh, you know, optimistic about the Zips where we were, uh, you know, uh, pessimistic about the Blue Raiders to start here? 
Yeah, I, I have to say I'm actually uh, – I feel a little better starting out pessimistic about a team because I feel like last week everything was just really, really – There's confident. nowhere to go but up for those teams. So, right, and it's you know. and it's interesting because, you know, we talked about it a little last week. I won't dig too deep, you know, back that way, but they're, they're – I think the, the floor is a little higher just across the country this year than – it seemed the last few years. And part of that are, are these types of head coaching uh, hires, like the ones you mentioned, UMass, New Mexico State, uh, UConn, even though our projections don't take, um, you know, my personal opinion, relatively high of, of Jim Mora uh, into account. Uh, but, you know, the last three years that Joe Moorhead has been involved, he's been the offensive coordinator at Oregon. Decent job, not you know, earth shattering or, or record setting by any stretch, but um, a quality program, obviously a, a Pac-12 uh, title contending team, Pac-12 champ two years ago. And then he was the head coach at Mississippi State, got pushed out the door, but still uh, they were winning games. They were going to bowl games. He got fired after uh, a loss in a bowl game. So um, partly because of that, you know, because he's been at uh, working at schools and, and even you know, within the window that we look, the three-year window, uh, was the head coach of an SEC school that went to a bowl game. Um, that is the the team performance ratings that he's been a part of uh, are helping to prop up what we expect from Akron. And, and so when you've got a program that has been operating as one of the bottom three programs in college football for the last half decade or so, um, there's certainly you know, going to get a, a boost from a head coaching hire uh, like Joe Moorhead. And, and Moorhead has, uh, what, a, a, a 52 and 25 career record as a Division One head coach. So he's a head coach at Mississippi State. He was also the head coach at Fordham, had success there, has been an offensive coordinator um, at Penn State. And he worked at Akron uh, in the middle 2000s, which is partly why – you know, not a lot of people would have expected uh, Joe Moorhead to take on a job like this, but he has connections there. So um, I'm not saying he's a miracle worker. I'm not saying he's the you know, best and smartest head coach in the country. But I do think in part, you know, him coming in, uh, his, uh, you know, bona fides as a, a offensive play caller are going to help. He did inherit some talented players. I mean, DJ Irons, uh, really intriguing quarterback. Juco transfer last year, missed some time with injury, but he's 6'6", 215, can run. Um, we know that Drew Moorhead has had success with running quarterbacks, even big running quarterbacks like Nick Fitzgerald at, at Mississippi State. Um, John Zell Nor Norrells, running back, uh, has has shown some things. Um, they have a you know second-team All-Mac tight end and Tristan Brank coming back. All five starters on the offensive line are coming back. Uh, the defense actually ranks second in returning production nationally, the way we calculate things. And then you add that he's actually been able to uh, take, you know, a, a uh, some bits and pieces that are promising that he inherited and add to that with a lot of Power 5 transfers and then a couple of G5 transfers that, are relatively impressive, actually. So, you know, Cam Wiley, uh, pretty talented running back, 
transferred from Minnesota, didn't get a whole lot of playing time there, got banged up, I believe. Um, but he could come in and and maybe be the guy at running back. If not, he's a pretty good one-two combo with the uh, Norrells. Added Shaki Jacques-Louis, who's had some big moments in his career, started 27 games at Pitt. Uh, Alex Adams, a high, you know, 88-rated player coming out of high school, um, transfer from LSU. Uh, they brought in, you know, a couple of tight end transfers from West Virginia and Alabama, offensive line transfers from Houston, Penn State. On the defensive side of the ball, got a former starter at linebacker and Tim Terry at Buffalo, uh, former starter as an edge rusher from Wyoming, Victor Jones, and the guys who don't have a whole lot of playing time that signed with uh, Akron, uh, you know, coming from schools like Syracuse, Memphis, Mississippi State, another Memphis, West Virginia again. So they not only have a, a pretty uh, promising core and a lot of returning production on defense, uh, plus they get Bubba uh, Arslanian back, who is their uh, all-MAC linebacker from the 2020 season who missed all but, I believe, three games last year. Add to that a, a handful of Power 5 transfers and some G5 transfers with experience and – you know, the, the Mac is pretty wide open to where the the floor, even though Akron has been at that floor, Florida or Akron and Bowling Green, they're not that far away from making a run, you know, at a division title or, or bowl eligibility. Um, we don't have them favored in a whole lot of games, only two, but in the games in which they're underdogs in conference play, uh, they are eight points or less in every game. So, I mean, every game, especially once you get to MAC play, is winnable. They do play Michigan State. They play Tennessee. Those are probably automatic losses. Even Liberty, you know, I mean, you, you could see a scenario where uh, Liberty takes a big setback without Malik Willis, but they're probably uh, a little too far, you know, for Akron to, to uh, really – you know, think that that's a, a super winnable game, but every game in conference play is certainly uh, within reach, I think, for Akron. So, you know, five and seven might be crazy optimistic, uh, but I, I could see it happening. You know, I could see DJ Irons turning into a really, really productive runner and, a, a, you know, certainly has some options to work with as a passer. I can see an offensive line that, you know, didn't grade out particularly well. I said all five starters are back. They actually have six returning starters because uh, of, of just, you know, injuries and, and different guys getting in the starting lineup. Um, uh, you know, but that unit's got uh, chemistry, and, and I think the level of coaching is probably going to get a little bit better. I think they'll play a little bit better. Four starters back in the secondary. You know, the, the linebacker core is strong. Two starters plus Ars Lennon plus Tim Terry, you know, and they they made some improvements on the the front of the defensive line as well. So that unit, even though it ranked 129th in D line performance, you know, I, I really think Victor Jones can be a disruptive pass rusher. Uh, and they certainly added, you know, some some size in the the interior of that defensive line, um, you know, from Devin Robinson who comes from Memphis but originally signed with Mississippi State, and then Curtis Harper from Syracuse. So. This is, this is an Akron team that, you know, we usually don't have very high expectations for teams coming off of a two and 10 year teams that have a first time uh, or, or excuse me, first year head coach. Uh, but 
I think that this is a a situation with Joe Moorhead that I think we could see a team uh, make a pretty quick turnaround. I think there's a lot to like and a lot to be optimistic about with Akron this year. Xavier, what do you think of Akron? Are we going to get the classic Xavier of, you know, leave old the, garb. Yeah. Yeah. The old garbage <laughs> thinks worse when you leave it out. Uh, because I think Nick just made a pretty compelling case of look, a lot of returning production plus some transfers from power five schools that are coming into Akron to potentially make them better. I, I see, you know, maybe not light at the end of the tunnel, but at least a pinprick of light. Uh, maybe it's not coming in <laughs> bright, but uh, this is, when you're moving up from the seller, this is the first step is to move into this next bunch of teams. So what do you think of Akron for 2022? I mean, and let's be honest, they're in a perfect conference to kind of make that random leap. Like the, the Mac is a conference that we talk about all the time on this podcast, having the ability to go from worst to first, or at least worst to middle of the table uh, in any given year. And I think Akron would be that team that if I, if I had some money to spend, I, I might be a little bullish um, with the way that Nick so Nick just put it, right? Not only that, but he's absolutely right. You know, when you look at their transfer portal, they they hit the jugular. They went, they did a really good job. Daniel George from Penn State, uh, four-star recruit out of high school. Uh, Anthony Wigan, Penn State, interior offensive lineman, four-star as well. Um, at the very least, what they did is added depth um, in, in a lot of positions. I love TJ Banks from West Virginia. Uh, as a guy who's going to come in and give them something at tight end. Like there, there's something with this team that I think genuinely could, could make them at the very least a hard out. And I think that that might be something that we look forward to when it comes to the Mac this year, especially with a team like Akron is all right, cool. Let's see how many of these games that you're able to just compete in. Right. And this is a team that I think Nick talked about with, you know, their game at Liberty that could very well be two and two out of their non-conference. Right. We expect them to be St. Francis. Uh, we may expect them to be Liberty with how they look against Michigan State and Tennessee. But once again, this is a team that if they come out the non-conference two and two, that you know, at that point you have to get four wins in a conference that as volatile as the as the MAC. I'm not so sure I can say it won't happen, right? Uh, with as much returning production as they have, yes, my old saying on here is you know, old garbage just stinks worse. But at the same time, I think when the difference is is you know, I guess Joe Moorhead in this case is, is a Glade plug-in. You know, now you've got a, a new coach. Everybody's going to have to play for their spot. There's no guarantees here anymore. You have to make sure that, you know, you're, you're putting 100% in because you don't have the favor like you would have with an older coaching staff that maybe knows how good you are or was the one that recruited you and brought you in. Now you've got to play your butt off because he's not going to have any favoritism. He's going to play the best guy on the field, you know, hopefully. And that's what typically most coaches do. They're going to play whoever is the best guy in practice. So hopefully that turns into what you also look like in game when everybody knows that their spot could be on the line. Yeah, I I, um, I was cackling, by the way. I had my <laughs> mic muted, but that Glade plug-in line, uh, pretty solid there, Xavier. So very, very nice work. Uh, let's go over uh, to 118, Southern Miss. Southern Miss struggled for much of Will Hall's first season. The Eagles lost nine of their first ten in part due to a string of quarterback injuries. But with a creative solution, USM won its final two to finish three and nine. Their DK total is four and a half wins. Another team that we have at five and seven. So we have them over four and a half. Nick, when we look at Southern Miss, um, they're uh, now members of the Sun Belt. Is that new conference schedule going to help or hurt them as they try to bounce back from what it amounted to be a disastrous 2021 season? You thought I was optimistic about Akron. 
you just Uh-oh. wait. You just wait for this one. Uh, no, I, on on the Sun Belt uh, question, uh, it, it's something that keeps slipping my mind. I mean, I was just uh, trying to flip through the magazine I have here in front of me just to you know make sure I'm on that page in case I want to you know do a quick uh, skim. And uh, I was like, where where is Southern Miss? I mean, I, I see Rice <laughs> and I see UTEP. What, what's what's going on? Uh, but yeah, they're, they're in the sunbelt now. And, and it's an interesting, um, thought or, or exercise, uh, because I was already, even if they were, you know, going back into the conference USA, I was going to expect Southern Miss to take a big step forward. You mentioned creative solution. They, the last three weeks of the season last year, when they won two of those games and then gave, uh, UTSA all it wanted and undefeated UTSA, they didn't have a quarterback. They had already played 10 players uh, at quarterback, injury after injury, um, you know, to the point where the uh, walk-on Jake Lang was the leading passer last year. Uh, They decided we're just going to, you know, do do what I would sometimes do when I took over, you know, Idaho in a uh, NCAA dynasty, and it was like, these quarterbacks are terrible. I'm just going to put a running back back there and run like the single wing. And they did it. You know, Frank Gore Jr. Uh, got a lot of reps uh, at quarterback as a you know wildcat type quarterback. But uh, Dejan Richard, um, you know, Demarcus Jones, uh, Antavius Willis, all, all kinds of players uh, rotated back there to um, – just try to figure out a way to to move the football forward because you know offensively Southern Miss was really really bad. I mean they ranked 128th in offensive team performance. Um, they were right there with New Mexico, you know, up to the the final couple of weeks of the season to potentially be the worst in college football. But uh, they were able to give a little bit of a, a jolt to that offense, uh, and Will Hall was able to you know be creative, try to figure out a way to put some points on the board and, and it worked out now fortunately they don't have to do that anymore Tykes is you know fully healthy got some uh playing time as a true freshman last year he was already one of the higher rated recruits in southern miss history at least the you know as, as far as the uh 247 rating goes bring him back you would think just having an an actual quarterback is going to give them a boost of sorts, but going back to the the Sun Belt question, uh, on the one hand, you have a, a set of what, eight new opponents, uh, so you have to prepare for those, and that's you know somewhat difficult to to prepare for a completely uh, new slate of opponents in conference play. However, those opponents also have to prepare for you, and they have to prepare for you. Um, looking, you know, what from last year's film is going to be much, much use this summer when some of these new Sunbelt coaching staffs have a little extra time they're going through and and saying, okay, we need to take a look at, uh, get a, get a something to work with, build a foundation for Southern Miss so that we're not completely caught off guard. You kind of have to throw out those last three games because you know, that they're not going to have Frank Gore Jr. back there at running back, at least not, you know, 60, 70 snaps per game. They might do it on occasion or, you know, down by the goal line, but uh, not going to be able to to get a whole lot off of the film, at least, 
you know, when you're looking at Southern Miss offense um, late in the season. And even when they were doing their traditional stuff, they're playing a walk-on half the time. You're not going to get much from that either. So Southern Miss has a little bit of that, um, you know, the, the benefit of, what am I looking for? What's the word I'm looking for here? Taken by surprise kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> there, the element of surprise. There you go. They have, they have that element of surprise a little bit uh, working for them. But also they're just a better team, I think. They're going to be healthier at the quarterback position, and, and that's big. But they are one of the uh, national leaders in returning production and Xavier, of course, you know, we'll, we'll mention it again. Does that, does that actually translate to a better team? I, I think it probably does in Southern Miss's case because that quarterback position was uh, hit so hard because you're going to be able to put Frank Gore Jr. in his natural position for the, the full season because you've got Jason Brownlee, who's an all-conference caliber wide receiver, uh, who actually is going to have a real quarterback throwing to him. But also, you know, they went hard into the transfer portal and brought in basically anybody that Ole Miss and Mississippi State didn't want. I mean, I mean, you look at this transfer list, uh, and a lot of it is along the line of scrimmage. A couple of offensive linemen. Uh, I count four defensive linemen, um, multiple linebackers, multiple players in the secondary, and it's Mississippi State, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Arkansas, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Memphis, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Mississippi State, Ole Miss. So, you know, they're bringing in uh, SEC caliber players. Um, might not have played a whole lot at, at that uh, school, but they were talented enough to get that offer coming out of high school. But a handful of them, you know, really did play. Uh, Aaron Odom, for example, defensive end, played over 500 snaps at Mississippi State last year. Um, you know, Bryce Ramsey played over 200 snaps uh, uh, center at, at Ole Miss. So there are some experienced players coming in. There are some players who are just, uh, you know, going to give a little size. That's something that Southern Miss needed on the interior defensive line. That's going to pay off big. And then they bring back a lot of their best players from last year, you know, guys who led uh, in every defensive category. Um, you know, Malik Shorts at safety, Josh Carr, uh, the defensive lineman, uh, led in tackles for loss and pressures and sacks. Uh, Natron Brooks, eight pass breakups last year. He's coming back. Haynes Maples was high on the tackles list. So they're, they're an experienced team. They're going to be, I think, hopefully a healthier team. They're going to have a little bit of uh, that element of surprise and just a really competitive schedule. Um, they play Liberty. One of the interesting things about Liberty, Southern Miss has a new offensive coordinator who has a long history with Will Hill, excuse me, Will Hall, but who happened to be the offensive line at Liberty the last three years. So they know that team really well. Uh, Tulane in week four, that's where Will Hall came from. Knows Tulane really well. So probably not going to beat Miami, but um, have a, a similar, you know, similar talent level to teams like Liberty and Tulane, and you know those programs really well through your coaching staff, Northwestern State, FCS opponent, you know, big favorite in that one. And then similar to, you know, what we were talking about, Middle Tennessee a couple of uh, teams ago, a lot of projected point spreads that are within a single possession. So a lot of winnable games, 
you know, Arkansas State, Texas State, they're in this mix. That's, you know, we're going to be talking about them in a little bit. Uh, we already talked about ULM last week. South Alabama, certainly a team that is a comparable uh, talent uh, pool. So there's a tough stretch in the middle with Louisiana, Georgia State, and Coastal Carolina. But, you know, only one Power Five opponent, probably only one guaranteed loss on the Southern Miss schedule. So even though they lost nine games last year, um, this is a team that that I truly do expect to be in contention for bowl eligibility in November. Will they get there? You know, can't say. Uh, but as as poorly as things went last year, one, I liked what I saw from Will Hall and his coaching staff to say, hey, we just got to figure something out to, to put points on the board, try to find a way to win a game or two. They did. That probably gave them a little bit of confidence. And then, you know, the returning production number is, is in that range where we expect a bump. It's that, at that extreme high end of the spectrum, uh, but then also throw in good work in the in the uh, transfer portal. So I think there's a lot of reasons to be pretty optimistic about Southern Miss this season. What about you, Xavier? I mean, uh, obviously Nick is in. Are you as optimistic about uh, Southern Miss or, or are you out, uh, not, not jumping on that bandwagon quite yet? I don't know if I'm hopping on the bandwagon just yet. Now, I, I will agree with Nick that there absolutely is an element of surprise uh, element of surprise, excuse me, to this team when you look at the fact that you have no real tape to go off of last season uh, at all. You know, you you really have to chuck all of that out. The only issue I have with that for them is when they actually have to get to the meat of their schedule, you know, uh, like Nick said, in October, early, no, early November, which is going to determine really at that point if they're going to be a bowl team or not, uh, that Louisiana, Georgia State, and, and at Coastal Carolina, three back-to-back-to-back, by that time, you're going to have more than enough film. You should have have ample film. So they're going to have to hit the ground running, just like Middle Tennessee State. Um, they're going to have to be a team that beats Liberty, beats Northwestern State, beats Tulane. You know, maybe you know beats Troy and beats Arkansas State, and, and really just sets itself up in a perfect situation. Right? They're they're four and two, five and one, because at the end of the day, if they're coming into that you know that three game stretch, Louisiana, Georgia State, and Coastal Carolina at like three and three. You're asking for a lot for you to be perfect against what might arguably be the best three teams on that in the Sun Belt Eastern Division. I guess you're you're being put into probably the hardest division in the the harder of the two divisions. And it's just it's just a really, you know, a slog right there uh, in in October, early November for them. And once again, South Alabama is no slouch either. They, you know, almost beat Coastal Carolina at the end of the year. Uh, And then you have ULM, which is ULM. Uh, But I I genuinely believe that, you know, they're going to be they have to be a team that capitalizes on their element of surprise early on against Troy, against Arkansas State, who we're going to talk about in a second, and against like Texas State to kind of get that um, and make it to where almost like you beat them so bad that the other teams kind of have to throw that film out as well. You know, it's one thing if you if you go into those games and they're close games and you got to show all your, you know, your, your, your tools of the trade and, you know, you're showing your fourth down decisions and you're showing maybe even a trick play here or there or whatever. It's another thing if you go into those three games, blow them out, and the other teams who are looking at that tape go, well, what are we going to learn from this? Like, it's going to be really hard. It's really hard to learn from a team's tape when they blow somebody out. It just is because they're just not necessarily going to do something where they're going to show their situational football decisions. So if they go and beat Troy and Arkansas State by 20 plus, you know, by or by, you know, 10 or 15, then at that point you're looking at it like we really don't have any film from that, too. So you keep that element of surprise going. Uh, but, yeah, 
absolutely like Middle Tennessee, they're going to have to capitalize on Liberty, uh, you know, reeling from probably losing Malik Willis early in the year. They're going to have to go and beat and beat Tulane. And Tulane's a weird one because Tulane's a team that typically starts the year off pretty solid, and then they kind of fall off as the season goes. I don't know how many times I think in the last three years Tulane's been like three and zero, four and one. I think last year they started off the year five and two before finally hitting a wall. So they, they typically start off pretty good, and then they finally hit a wall at some point in their year, which ends up you know being their downfall in some respects. But they're getting them in week four, so Tulane might be a different football team at that point in the year. Uh, I think Southern Miss should be a bowl team, uh, but you know it's, the Sun Belt's not an easy conference to, to go and win six games in. You know, it's, it's rather tough. Now, they do have the team to do it. Nick's absolutely right. The, the more I scrolled down, the more I saw, I was like, okay, cool. This is just Ole Miss, Mississippi State, you know, uh, at the SBC. Uh, I'm sorry. My bad. I didn't think that. My bad, Nick. I, I'm thinking about a different Tulane team. My bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I just, you know, at the end of the day, I, I forget sometimes. And Tulane was terrible last year. <laughs> Nick, Nick for that. No, no, absolutely. Well, so so they did remember in, in week one, they did scare Oklahoma to death. Only lost uh, 40 true. to 35. And then they beat up Morgan State the next week. And then they lost their next eight games. But <laughs> but they usually are a, a tough opponent. And and I, it wouldn't shock me. I mean, we haven't talked about Tulane yet, right? So we, we have a, a little bit higher expectation for them here. But uh, you might have been thinking of, of the year prior. A, a couple, yeah, uh, yeah, a couple of years ago. Last year kind of got away from them a little bit. Yeah, the three years prior, they went six and six, seven and six, and seven and six. So I just scrapped their 20, 2021, just like they scrapped their 2021. Uh, but no, back to back, back to Southern Miss. I do think this is going to be a little bit of an adjustment period as well for them, obviously being in the Sun Belt, new teams. You're going to have to really pick up on those teams pretty early on. Uh, otherwise, you know, you're going to kind of be, I won't say lost in the dark at all, but at the same time, it's a new conference for them. So new opponents. I want to see how they manage that situation as well. Uh, yeah, so I like Southern Miss. I would. I, I love that they've joined the Sun Belt. They were probably my, my, my favorite team to join the Sun Belt outside of maybe JMU. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what they do this year. Uh, I would be comfortable saying five and seven in year one in the Sun Belt, but they can prove me wrong and go seven and five. All right, let's go over to Nick's favorite team, the, his home away from oh, home yeah. team, the Rainbow Warriors, Hawaii, uh, coming in at number 117 here. Uh, they were competitive last year. They won their final two games to finish six and seven. Off-field issues, of course, led to the departure of Todd Graham, and uh, they hired program legend Tommy Chang back. Uh, their DK win total is four and a half. We have them going the same six and seven as last year, which is another kind of big uh, projected plus minus uh, from what the books are saying uh, when they're over is four and a half. And so with Hawaii, Nick, I mean, Timmy Chang inherits a roster that ranks dead last 131st in returning production so how do they avoid a huge drop off here can it happen for them um with a new head coach and not a lot coming back i'm i'm worried about hawaii um so our our production or excuse me our projections are relatively uh optimistic you know you, you mentioned that we do Show them going over. Keep in mind, Hawaii does play 13 regular season games, um, so it you know they have one more opportunity to get uh, that that extra win. Uh, but part of our projection is you know the last couple of years Hawaii was a bowl team. They, they've been a bowl team for a little bit, 
And it's difficult the way that we calculate things um, for a team, even if they lose, I mean, literally every stat leader in the, the sheet that, you know, we have here for notes and that'll go out to our Patreon supporters uh, after the show, you know, uh, leading passer, Chevin Cordero transferred to San Jose State, leading rusher, Day Day Hunter transferred to Liberty, Calvin Turner, you know, wide receiver, all around offensive uh, playmaker out of eligibility. Top graded offensive lineman Gene Pryor out of eligibility. L- leading tackler and tackles for loss and sack uh, leader Darius Masau transferred to UCLA. Jonah Lalou, uh, 40 pressures. He's transferred to Oklahoma. Uh, nickelback safety Corey Bethley. Uh, probably going to be starting at safety for Arizona State this year. And then Cortez Davis, you know, longtime starter in the secondary, had 18 pass breakups last year. Uh, he is is gone as well. So, I mean, literally every stat, you know, that, that we make note of, uh, they have to replace the guy who was at the top of the leaderboard. So uh, one returning starter on defense, four on offense, it, it's going to be really, really tough. And then, you know, as much of, as you mentioned, a program legend, Timmy Chang is, was at one time the NCAA uh, passing yardage leader in you know NCAA history. As, as good of a story as it is to, you know, turn the page from what got to be a, a really um, embarrassing end to the, the Todd Graham era there. Uh, to, to hire somebody who is so closely tied to the university, I think is a big step in the right direction. But Timmy Chang, you know, hasn't been a coordinator since uh, he was the OC at Jackson State, what, a decade ago? Um, has been a position coach at Nevada uh, recently. So at least by a resume standard of what we usually look for, probably you know, on the lower end of what we would expect to be qualified for uh, your first head coaching job. But, you know, they decided to go with the program fit and we'll see. I mean, it, it, it certainly could be a situation where things had gotten a little rotten last year. And so perhaps there's a, a scenario where uh, the roster comes together and, and, you know, Hawaii is always a, a pretty difficult place to play because the travel is is so long. Um, they did bring in a lot of transfers. I mean, I mentioned all the guys going out in every category. We've got multiple guys coming in at just about every category, including uh, quarterback, you know, Cameron Cooper, transfer from Washington State, Joey Yellen, transfer from Pitt, and Braden Shager got some uh, playing time as a true freshman last year. So there will be some interesting you know, uh, things to work with there at the quarterback position. They landed a big time transfer uh, at linebacker, Wyndon Hauli, who signed with Nebraska, high four-star rated player, uh, didn't play, but decided to come back home. Uh, he pencils in as a starter. They're bringing in, you know, power five talent on the defensive line uh, at safety. Verdell Edwards from Iowa State was a starter. They're, you know, trying to get creative, get guys who, uh, you know, play special teams roles and, and things like that in the Pac-12, but also, you know, could they find a player like Jojo Fato at, at FCS Cal Poly uh, who might end up starting or, or being a contributor on the defensive line? So there are a ton of moving pieces. They're, you know, 
bringing the, uh, a new offense, air raid-ish offense, uh, maybe some run-and-shoot elements because, you know, Timmy Chang did play in the run-and-shoot and, and has spoken to his comfortability, comfortability and, and familiarity with that offense. It's going to be interesting to see what it looks like under new offensive coordinator uh, Ian Shoemaker, who had some really, really, you know, explosive offenses at Eastern Washington. Uh, also felt to mention that Middle Tennessee brought in an air raid guy as well. But um, it's it's – it's going to be interesting to see, and our numbers don't see a huge drop off. I personally think a if if there's a team in this group of ten uh, that we could see the biggest drop off, it might be Hawaii. I mean, this might be a ten or eleven loss team, but you know, if you if you squint, there are some some things to uh, perhaps have a little optimism about. As inexperienced as that offense is, they bring back three starters on the offensive line, uh, five players with 15 career starts or more. There are a couple of two or three really interesting wide receivers, Zion Bowens, Jonah Pinoak, uh, and uh, Tamatoa Mokial Atimaala, who had a huge spring game. Um, so it's going to be interesting. You know, They're, they're probably going to have to – uh, win shootouts to have an opportunity to win. So this could be a high-scoring offense, could see a lot of passing yards. If somebody takes control of that quarterback job immediately, you know, might be in line for a really big year. But there's a lot of reasons to think that this might be the worst defense in college football. Um, if the completely rebuilt secondary comes together, maybe not. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of turnover, a lot of inexperience, and not a whole lot of reason to be optimistic about um, the defense. So we could be, you know, have a lot of, uh, you know, final scores in the 50s, 40s, things like that late at night on our, our college football Saturdays. Um, but I'm not convinced that we're going to see a, a whole lot of Hawaii victories. There, there certainly are plenty of winnable games. Um including even that week zero matchup with Vanderbilt. We do have Hawaii favored in that game, even though uh, the odds makers do not. But uh, there's there's uh, plenty of reason to expect that there's just too much turnover. You know, Timmy Chang uh, could be the, a great hire in several years, but might be a little early to expect a big turnaround under him in, in year one. Um and just so many new faces that that it's it's going to be really really difficult, but could also be a really really fun team as well. Well, first of all, I mean, shout out to Nick for saying those names with such confidence, and uh, also shout out to Xavier and I for not uh, making fun of him for it. So uh, that that was that was very impressive. But Xavier, when you look at Hawaii, man, I, I guess the the nice thing here is. If you're starting from scratch, this is scratch. Like this is as far as returning production and all brand new players and all that stuff. So at least, um, you know, you can kind of build it your own way, but that stuff usually leads to a couple rough years in the near future. And it doesn't look, there's just not a lot of positives to pull away uh, for the rainbow warriors this year. Right. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing. And, and, 
what I will say is I think he's done an amazing job on the recruiting trail already, getting back the kids that he lost out of the California and Hawaii area, getting them to come back home. Nick talked about some of them um, in the transfer portal, which I love, you know, and I think that that's going to be part of the rebuild, right? It's keeping those, some of those kids home that end up going, you know, going away, keeping those kids that are in, that are from Hawaii or on that California uh, line that want to come back and play and have Hawaiian roots that want to come back and play for Hawaii. That's going to be, you know, Tommy Chang's first, like, thing he has to do is doing that then he can start building on wins and, and becoming a competitive outfit because I, I absolutely agree with Nick I just don't see it this season they're not a conference schedule in my opinion is just rather rough yes you play you know Vanderbilt and Western Kentucky at home so that's great but at the same time I, I'm not so sure that they're going to be either one of them then you go at Michigan then you go get play Duquesne it's not Duquesne but Duquesne uh, which may be the, the one win that they do get in that non-conference portion of the year. Now, what I will say about their team last year is that, you know, you look at some of the games, you know, you look at, you know, first conference game last year against San Jose State, they lost 13 to 17, right? Like there's some games on here that you look at and you go, they probably could have won that game if the ball had bounced differently at Utah State, or excuse me, versus San Diego State, lost 17 to 10. So there were some games last year where you expected, you know, if the ball had bounced differently, they would have won. However, when I, when you look at as Nick talked about, when you look at it, as much as they had lost, that defense not, is not nearly going to be as good, you know, and that offense is going to be starting from scratch, like, you know, Scott talked about, and it's going to be rather difficult to get your footing when your first three games are going to be against Vanderbilt, Western Kentucky, and Michigan, and then right after Duquesne, you hop right into conference play, and you go on the road to, in back-to-back matchups to La Cruces, New Mexico, and San Diego, California, to play New Mexico State and San Diego State. Like, I just don't see where they – you know, put together a stretch here where they're able to win a couple of games in a row, gain some confidence, uh, you know, and rally to, to win five or six games to get them in a bowl conversation. And so I think Miami struggles, I'm sorry, Miami, Hawaii struggles in this first year. But at the end of the day, I think what Tommy Chang's most important thing to do, and he's already doing it already, is to impact this school on the recruiting trail to have people buy back into the Hawaii program. And I think that that's what his job is first year. And I think if he can do that, then they're moving in the right direction. Uh, because like we talked about, you know, they the the, the, uh, the school in itself and the program was kind of, I won't say in shambles, but it was in a tough spot, you know, uh, when their former coach left. It was not in a great situation. And so to go get a guy who's, yes, uh, you know, doesn't have the amount of experience that you may have liked at a school like Hawaii, but has the buy-in. That's really what you're looking for is a guy who's going to be bought in, not going to use this as a bridge school. And it's going to be there for the next five to seven years and try to build this program from the ground up. So I, I like what he's doing on the recruiting trail, like I said. And if they continue to do that, I think Hawaii is going to be a team that at the very least coming in the next couple of years will be a bowl team slash uh, a team that you have to reckon with, uh, you know, in, in their respective conference. So, not next year, but maybe the year after we're talking about Hawaii genuinely getting out of this basement area. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, what can go wrong with hiring a former great player from your team, right? Ask Nebraska. It always goes well. Hey, hey, uh, hey, <laughs> hey, hey, that's just unfair. <laughs> just, hey, <laughs> Michigan made the playoffs with one. Uh, that's true. Georgia won a national championship in their seventh one. year. Yeah, did, didn't take them a while to get there, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, let's go to 116 here. Texas State is up, and uh, they were competitive last year, 4-8 and eight, uh, in 2021, but that was double Jack Spavital's career win total, and uh, they played eight games that were decided by nine points or less, including four of those wins. So, you know, a uh, couple bounces go their way, and they're uh, walking out of here with 
a couple more wins. Their DQ total is five, so the highest of this bunch that we've talked about so far. Uh, five and seven is what we uh, have them at. So, you know, kind of at even, I think with our projections, it's like five point something, something. So we would officially have them over five, but we have them right at the number. And for Texas State, is this the year that they finally break through and make it to a bowl game under fourth year head coach Jake Spavital? What do you think, uh, Nick? Can, can they do it? I, I think they've got a shot. And I've been kind of waiting for that breakthrough for Texas State. I, I kind of liked Jake Spavital, um, you know, back when he was what he, he was with uh, um, Sonny Dykes for a little while there at, at Cal. Um, I know worked with Cliff Kingsbury, I believe, at, at Texas A&M on, on his offensive staff there when Kingsbury was the uh, coordinator. And, you know, I, I was kind of expecting him to come in and inject some real life into the offense. And they've, they've you know, had some moments, uh, but have never really been able to uh, play at a high level consistently. And, you know, team performance last year, they were in the triple digits on offense, defense, and overall, uh, 110th overall, 101st on offense, and 110th on defense. Um, we don't necessarily expect a whole lot of growth on, on our uh, projection side of things because, you know, they haven't made any uh, coaching hires. They're, they're still, you know, Spavital is, I believe, still the play, uh, play caller, but Jacob Peeler is in his second year there. Um, so, you know, there's not really that injection uh, of a Joe Moorhead at Akron to kind of give those projections a boost, but they have, um, you know, a fair amount coming back. They rank 31st in offensive returning production, and that's with having to replace uh, both quarterbacks who played last year, Brady McBride transferred to Appalachian State, and then Tyler Vitt uh, decided not to come back for his extra year of eligibility. And, and they brought in they, uh, really three transfers uh, to, to go with a fourth transfer left over from last year in Ty Evans, who didn't end up playing, but kind of, you know, the, the uh, front runner, uh, heavy favorite to start is Lane Hatcher, who really, you know, has, has never been given the uh, starting quarterback job outright, has had to share it at times, has, uh, you know, started as the backup, I believe, in, you know, each of the last two seasons at Arkansas State, first to Logan Bonner and then, or the last three seasons at Arkansas State, twice to Logan Bonner and, and then last year to James Blackman. But when he comes in and has an opportunity to play, uh, posts really solid numbers. I mean, threw 13 picks last year. Um, so obviously not perfect, but uh, the yards per attempt numbers have you know been decent. Um, and two years ago, uh, he he just put up absolutely you know really two and three years ago at, at Arkansas State uh, put up some really huge numbers. So it, it's an interesting fit. I think it's going to you know even though the the interception number is actually a little higher compared to Brady McBride, I, I think Lane Hatcher is going to bring a little bit of stability at that position, but it sounds like Ty Evans, who uh, transferred from NC State a couple of years ago and uh, technically, I believe, is still the highest rated quarterback or, or maybe overall recruit that they've ever brought to Texas State based on his uh, number coming out of high school. 
going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And then CJ Rogers, actually, um, former walk on at Baylor, who it sounded like had just a huge spring, uh, has transferred in. So maybe he'll be, you know, in that mix as well. But Texas State has lived in the transfer portal the last couple of years. And, you know, they're still looking for that big time playmaker at wide receiver. Is it going to be Demarcus Gregory coming in from USF? Is it going to be, uh, you know, one of the other Power Five transfers, Jaden Mitchell from Arizona, Amir Robinson from Rutgers? You know, not not sure. Um, the offensive line uh, was actually a really, really solid unit last year, ranked 51st in our offensive line performance ratings. And though only two, uh, or excuse me, only three starters are coming back, they've strengthened through the transfer portal as well. They've got combined 156 uh, career starts on the offensive line at all levels. So a, a very, very experienced group. Have to think that they're going to be uh, you know, decent there. On the defensive side of the ball, they bring back a lot of their you know, top performers, even though leading tackler Mark Harvey and Coleman is gone, tied for the team leading tackles for loss, led with 85 or excuse me, 82 tackles. Uh, they bring back guys like Jordan Revels on the defensive line, Isaiah Nixon, who wasn't even a starter, but uh, led the team in pressures and sacks. Uh, Cordell Rogers at corner. Uh, they've got you know multiple starters back at linebacker and at corner as well. They bring back Jerron Morris, who you know has started 31 games, has 20 career production points, played at a all-conference level uh, prior to being injured on the ninth snap of the season last year. So. Uh, I, I think, yes, that that this Texas State team is capable of, you know, breaking through and, and getting to bowl eligibility. Part of that is, you know, upgrade at the quarterback position. Part of that is uh, upgrades through the transfer portal, getting a little healthier at some spots uh, and experience coming back. But part of it is also they have a, a schedule that ranks 127th in our strength of schedule metrics. So a well, well below average schedule. They do pick up Baylor, of course, uh, which, or, or, you know, played them for the second straight year. Um, that's going to be a tough one, but they play Nevada, who is, you know, right there with Hawaii in, in the depths of returning production. FIU, who's on an 11 game losing streak. Houston Baptist, who was not a good FCS opponent last year. And then a lot of winnable games in the Sun Belt where they're in the Western division. We've already mentioned pretty much everybody in the Western division uh, in the Sunbelt Conference is a title contender. So, yeah, I think Texas State, you know, will be in the mix to become bowl eligibility. It might come down to that, uh, you know, senior day hosting Louisiana, and, and we don't quite know what Louisiana is going to look like with the amount of turnover they've had on the the roster and the coaching staff. Um but I, I definitely think that this Texas State team is going to be competitive week in and week out. And, you know, maybe finally it'll click uh, under, you know, Jake Bavitol and, and this coaching staff to where it becomes a pretty explosive offense and, and mix it with uh, a, a, you know, decent, not, not great defense, but certainly have uh, some capable players and, and perhaps can build a, a decent unit on that side of the ball get a couple of breaks and yeah, I think absolutely this Texas state team could go bowling might even make a run at, at the Western division. Xavier, what do you think? Do you think there's a bowl shot for Texas state here 
with the improvement specifically at the QB position, like uh, Nick said, or are you kind of out on them? No, I'm definitely out. Uh, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I, I think that they are probably one of the teams that benefit the least from this, uh, from the teams coming into the, the, the division and coming into the conference. Uh, it's playing, having to play GM, GMU on the road. Then you've got App State at home in back-to-back games. Uh, we just talked about Southern Miss and what they may or may not look like, but having no idea. On top of that, you booked them for your homecoming game. That just sounds like a, you know a, a barnstormer waiting to happen. Uh, so you know, I, I just think that Texas State has definitely been trending upwards, and they're a team that I think you know very much like Georgia State, maybe two or three years ago, is a team that maybe could surprise some folks this year. So I'm not going to completely rule it out. But I will say that I feel like they kind of, you know, like I said, they are going to be the teams that wish that JMU and Southern Miss didn't come over this year because I'd be giving them much more of a chance if they did not. Uh, you know, I think they'll go two and one or, or even three and one, uh, excuse me, three and one or maybe two and two in their non-conference uh, schedule. I think they could absolutely beat FIU, Nevada, Houston Baptist, uh, and I will not give them the game against Baylor. Uh, but then I think at that point, you really have to do a good job of starting off great in your conference and to start off with jmu app state and troy in your first three you could very well lose all three uh, and i will only give them a one and two out of that situation and I, I just don't know if texas state will be able to rally for that second half of the year where they play in my opinion a ton of toss-ups you know you get ulm south alabama and arkansas state those are a ton of toss-up matchups uh outside of south alabama they should be either you know favored or like maybe a one possession difference in those games against ulm and arkansas state if not be you know uh being the favorites like i just said i just think then getting louisiana at the end of the year a team that i expect to kind of start the you know sputter to start off but find their footing louisiana lost a ton of talent however i think by the end of the year they would have figured themselves out i think that that's going to be a game that may decide texas state getting to a bowl game i just don't see them beating louisiana uh in, in that situation so I'm comf- I'm comfortable with saying that they go five and seven this year. Uh, so one better than what they did last season. I'm just not ready to say that they're going to make that leap into bowl eligibility slash, you know, the middle tier of that of that Sun Belt, which we've known to be pretty difficult. Uh, what I will say, Nick hit it on the head already. They did hit the recruiting, uh, the transfer portal really hard this year. Um, and they didn't. And this is one of those teams that I will say they did not bring in really any freshman of name. Right. They brought in five total. Uh, that that was it. And, and so that's a team that definitely is going to be relying on the guys that are there and relying on the transfers that they brought in 100%. But, you know, I, I think that that, once again, can either be a sign of confidence or, you know, a, or that you're really leaning on those transfers to hit the ground running. In Texas State's case, I think it's a sign of confidence of what they have on their roster already and the trending upwards of what they have. A lot of these kids, uh, that you know, Texas State's going to be leaning on this year would have been a part of their head coach's first one or two major recruiting classes for the school. So this is the year that they used to see them take maybe that that junior or senior year jump. Uh, so I like Texas State to get right on the edge, and maybe guilt comes down to the last game of the season. Like I said, against Louisiana, they go into that game five and six and have an opportunity to make their first bowl game. I just don't know if I'm confident enough to say that coming into the last week of the season, you have to beat a, a team that's been a perennial powerhouse in the Sun Belt over the last couple of years in Louisiana for your bowl eligibility, if that's going to happen. 
Uh, going over to 115, Arkansas State here. Uh, suffered through a disappointing 2-10 and 10 record last season under first-year head coach Butch Jones. That included five losses by a single possession. Those are always heartbreakers. Six opponents did score 40 points or more on the Red Wolves. Uh, five is their DK uh, total. We have them going 6-6, six and six, so over the five for Arkansas State. Uh, two and ten in twenty-one, and they rank one hundred twenty-first in returning production. Nick, make the case for the Red Wolves to be a Sun Belt Conference West contender. Here, is there a case to be made for them? Well, I think the simplest uh, case to be made is they're they're in the right division for it. I mean, uh, the West is wide open, and yeah, they lost ten games last year. You mentioned how many of them were close. And they, they were kind of weird. If you go back and look at the postgame win expectancies, um, you know, in week two against Memphis, uh, 55 to 50 final score there. Uh, so on paper, one possession game, close. Uh, they had a 4% chance of winning that game. If you, uh, you know, look at the, the box score afterward uh, and play that game, you know, 100 times, Arkansas State wins at four of those times. Uh, Tulsa, they lost 41-34, single, single possession, one possession game, 0% postgame win expectancy. A one-point loss to Louisiana uh, on a Thursday night after a bye week, they had a 12% postgame win expectancy. So, you know, even the, the close games look close on paper in the first eight or nine weeks of the year, uh, weren't actually all that close. I mean, you know, three three games, three one-score games, you add them all up, and we would have expected Arkansas State to get uh, .16 wins based on those post-game win expectancies. So they deservedly lost those games, even though, you know, they came up uh, came up just short in, in the, the final score. However, the final three uh, games of the year, they really took a step forward. We're much more competitive. The defense played a lot better. They got a win over ULM, 27-24. Uh, they played Georgia State close, lost by eight, and then they uh, had had a little bit of a heartbreaker there against Texas State. Um, you look at the postgame win expectancies for those games, 86% in the win over ULM, 50% against Georgia State, 91% in that loss to Texas State. So we would have expected them to have 227 wins in that final three they ended up only with one so it, it kind of you know worked itself out but they were a really kind of weird team in 2021 so you know how does that translate to 2022 it, it's hard to say there's a lot of turnover um james blackman was injured last year, missed some significant time with injury. Also, Lane Hatcher was there. Uh, so the quarterback situation was kind of, you know, in flux week to week. Well, now Hatcher is gone. So you expect this is James Blackman's, you know, last chance. It's his job. Go out and, and see what you can do. But then they brought in A.J. Meyer, who, you know, had some starting experience for Miami of Ohio and, and did some good things. Uh, so maybe it's not a done deal that, that James Blackman's the guy. Uh, they had Lincoln Perry, their leading rusher, uh, transfer also with Lane Hatcher to Texas State. It's going to give Johnny Lang, the former Iowa State transfer, an opportunity. Uh, at wide receiver, I just was, you know, I'm working on the statistical projections database right now, and Arkansas State wide receivers the last few years, and, and the way the projections are looking right now for, you know, somebody like Tavalence Hunt and, and Jeff Foreman, 
uh, there's there's an opportunity if if past performance is any indicator, uh, and we you know think it certainly could be that those two guys and and maybe even tight end Emmanuel Stevenson are are in for uh, you know some some a lot of opportunities and and perhaps some big games. Nevertheless, only one returning starter on the offensive line, a unit that ranked 122nd in O-line performance last year. So it, it seems like for every positive, there's at least one negative on the offensive side of the ball, even though we do expect, you know, this was a pretty explosive offense, especially passing last year. I mean, they did rank 130th in our rushing team performance, uh, but they ranked 65th in passing, which is, you know, maybe the best of, of any team that we're talking about today. So uh, you, you couple that with the defense that finally looked like it showed a little bit of uh, you know, potential to turn the corner at the end of last season, they do have legitimately one of the best defensive players in the Sun Belt in uh, Kevon Bennett. The transfer from Tennessee led Arkansas State in every, you know, category you would expect. Uh, tackles, you know, 16 and a half tackles for loss, 48 pressures, eight sacks. Um, they actually moved him from, you know, defensive end, edge rusher type position to more of a traditional linebacker. So in some ways, you know, maybe that hurts his, uh, you know, production potential because he's not going to be, you know, coming off the edge quite as often, but they did bring in, um, you know, three SEC transfers on that defensive line. So perhaps there's, uh, some, some, uh, potential that, that, they won't lose too much moving uh, Bennett to a new position. Uh, the secondary is is potentially going to be an issue. They do bring back two starting corners. They they also bring in a couple of transfers who could compete for starting time. It looked like uh, Illinois transfer Eddie Smith nailed down a starting spot in the spring, but you know this was a team that ranked 111th in defensive team performance last year, 130th stopping the run. And even though the passing numbers were a little bit better, I mean, you know, they certainly um, gave up plenty of big plays on the back end as well. So I think that Arkansas State is going to have a better record. I think there is a an argument to be made that the schedule sets up, you know, outside of non-conference games against uh, Ohio State and Memphis, the rest of the schedule, there's there's 10 winnable games. Um, a lot of single-digit and, you know, one-possession projected point spreads in our calculations. Even that Memphis game is not out of uh, the realm of possibility. But Arkansas State's going to have a chance to uh, beat every team in the Sun Belt West, they also pick up UMass. They play Grambling in Week One, so they're they're going to you know be uh, favored in in looks like four games, and and then you know an underdog of a field goal or less in three or four others. So they're they're going to have opportunities, and if you know Blackman can stay healthy, if those receivers can continue. Uh, their level of production that we've seen at, at Arkansas State in recent years, if that offensive line gives them a little bit of room to operate and creates a, a few running lanes for Johnny Lang, Arkansas State could you know, make a run at 500. And, and I think uh, we might see a Sunbelt West champ that's six and six overall and, you know, what, five and three 
in in the in the conference. So Arkansas State could certainly be in that mix. Uh, what do you think, Xavier? I mean, Arkansas State, you know, for CFF nerds, we're always looking for the potential uh, offensive output here. And it's always great because, like we mentioned before, six games giving up over 40 points, they usually have to play point for point with whoever they're playing. But it doesn't uh, does not a complete team make here mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of Arkansas State. So what do you think about them? Do they have a shot at winning the West? I mean, Arkansas State's a team that, and I mean this in the politest way possible, if, if their defense gives them a pulse, they've got a shot. This has been a team that I think for the last three or four years, barring last season realistically, has had one of the best offenses in the Sun Belt, or I wouldn't even say barring last year. They, they, they are an explosive offense, and when you play Arkansas State, you know if your defense doesn't come into play, it's going to have to be a shootout. Like, that's just what everybody in the Sun Belt understands about Arkansas State when they walk onto the field. They know that their offense can put up a ton of points. Uh, that doesn't necessarily translate to wins, as we saw last year. But, you know, when you lose a game to Memphis 55-50, to 50, that just tells you how good your offense can be, but also how poor your defense probably was at the same time. And, and so, at the end of the day, if their defense can give them, you know, two and a half good quarters – with as good as their offensive production has been over the last couple of years, I don't see why they can't win the West. The West is wide open. I genuinely think when you look at the West as well, or when you look at the schedule, excuse me, they have a really winnable schedule. There's, there's not this, you know, run of terribly hard teams back to back to back that they have to face. Um, obviously outside of Ohio State and Memphis in back-to-back games, but you never know with Memphis. Memphis could beat a team by 30 one week and then lose to a G5 team the very next week. You just really never know, especially Memphis early in the year. It takes about seven games to figure out what Memphis is going to do with their football season. Uh, so I, I would absolutely not be surprised if uh, Arkansas State got out of their, you know, out of their non-conference three and one, or excuse me, two and one. Um, and then, you know, I think that they look at themselves as a team that can absolutely run the table in the West. I think I absolutely agree with Nick. They could be seven and five, six and six, and win the West. And that's the that, that's I won't say it's a, a a bad thing to say. I just think that the West right now is the weaker of the two divisions. And when you look at it, you know, to be honest, it's a, it's a, a situation that Arkansas State should be able to compete in. This is a team that, like I said, offensively has been excellent. Defensively, not so much. So you're just waiting for that defense to come and play football. And if that's the case then they could win a lot of these games. They could be way better than six and six, to be honest, if, if you know, if they are able to, to get some defensive production. This is a team that barely lost to Louisiana last year. You know, like I said, they, they barely lost at Tulsa, like a one possession game versus Memphis. That's three games right there. And we're talking about a two and ten ball club that also lost by a touchdown to Georgia State and a and a two points to you know Texas State. That's a seven and five ball club right there. And so once again, defense, defense, defense. And I hate to harp on it so much, but I feel like Arkansas State fans who are listening will agree with me on this, that their defense just has to come and do what their job is. Um, and I think that they've done a good job in the recruiting portal as well. They got a four-star out about uh, that committed to Alabama. Uh, I love his first name. His first name is King. I'm not going to attempt his last name, uh, but he's actually from West Point, Georgia. So, you know, uh, he's going to be one heck of a player. Uh, but, no, he's, he's a linebacker that, that went to Alabama. So, to be able to get that, that's one, he that's one heck of a coup. You know, they, they went and got a Vanderbilt defensive lineman and a Colorado defensive lineman. Once again, hitting on P5 guys, especially on the defensive side of the football, is going to be massive for them. And, you know, I think that's going to be their biggest key, you know, and lastly, picking up a kid from Illinois uh, as, as a safety as well. So, Arkansas State, I think out of all the teams we're going to talk about, 
in this episode have the best chance of going from legitimately the bottom to making an absolute splash in 2022. King Makuta. I'm gonna give you a I'm gonna give you an eight out of ten on that one, Nick. That was that was solid. That was well, definitely solid. That's what we're going with. Yeah. Scott muted. <laughs> you know what gives him at least three points there? is the confidence yes. i think uh because you might be, he might be butchering it but he said it with such confidence that i believe it so didn't uh, stumble I, didn't try to like repeat no himself at all just, and just, just went, went in to correct you immediately so i love it no uh, offense needed if i if i butchered it but uh made a good <laughs> made a good effort yeah i thought it was an a plus effort uh, going over to 114, Rutgers, despite a 5-7 and seven regular season record, Rutgers played in the Gator Bowl in 2021. I believe they were a COVID replacement team. Uh, the Scarlet Knights lost 38-10 to 10 to Wake Forest in that game, but showed improvement uh, in Greg Schiano's second season. So the question for Rutgers is, is, what is the direction? What is the talent direction at Rutgers under Shiano? Is the roster building talent here? Is it just constant turnover? And I know we have a secondary question here about the QBs, just basically between Noah Vedral and uh, Gavin Wismet, who a lot of people are expecting to be the quarterback in 2022. Who do you think gives them the best chance at a bowl game? So, um, you know, it, it, it's tough for Rutgers. Rutgers is a team that had success under Shiano, and that is why he has been brought back here, of course. Um, but, I mean, lightning may not be striking twice here for uh, the Scarlet Knights. What do we think of Rutgers for 2022, Nick? Well, it's more difficult now than it was, right? I mean, life in the Big Ten East is about as tough as it gets in college football, uh, and Rutgers is just – been uh, such a, a, a difficult, um, you know, the, the program since Gianna left uh, took a, a big turn in the wrong direction from a, a talent standpoint and one, one lost record standpoint. And now they're in a, you know, they're not in the big East anymore. Right. So it, it's, it's going to be uh, more difficult now than it was. There's, there's certainly some progress and, you know, have to, to respect that that Rutgers was willing to kind of last minute jump into that Gator Bowl uh, spot, played a, a you know Wake Forest team that had already won ten games, one of the most explosive offenses in the country, and you know Rutgers in, in the first quarter. I mean, it was seven to seven, right? They they gave up a touchdown, went down, scored a touchdown, and and uh, looked like they were in it for a little bit, but eventually, of course, Wake Forest pulled away. And you always hear, I mean, that that uh, prepping for a bowl game, those practices are, are super valuable. I'm sure a team like Rutgers that didn't think it was going to get that opportunity made the most of, of uh, that extra work. Um, and then I hear, I hear a lot of good things on the recruiting trail for Rutgers. Uh, seems like uh, they're doing a, a better job of recruiting the state of New Jersey, which is um, – I mean, arguably in, in the Northeast, the most talent-rich state uh, in that region, um, certainly up there with, with Pennsylvania um, in, in, in that part of the world, my part of the world now. Um, sounds like Shiano and, and his coaching staff doing a, a pretty good job uh, holding down the fort there. They brought in some, you know, some transfers where they needed uh, an injection of talent. This year, it's most evident at receiver where they brought in Ta uh, Taj Harris and Sean Ryan, 
both former starters at Power 5 programs, and then office, also the offensive line where they had to replace four starters, including, um, you know, arguably their best who transferred uh, to UCLA, Raekwon O'Neal. They, they've had to rebuild, you know, that entire unit, basically. Uh, only Holland Pierce is uh, a returning starter from last year. It looks like three transfers and one former defensive lineman are going to fill in the, the other four spots. So uh, it's it's going to be tough for that. The turnover there is going to be difficult. Um, but, you know, Rutgers is the only team we're talking about today that had a player drafted last year, and, and they had two of them. So they have had some talented players come through. There is some talent remaining. Um, looking specifically at quarterback, I, I think Gavin, uh, Gavin Wimsett, who joined the team – after the season had started, left high school, uh, you know, as an early graduate, but in the middle of his senior year, uh, showed up at Rutgers, got a little bit of playing time, was able to preserve a red shirt, played in that bowl game, didn't look great. I mean, the numbers are, are pretty, pretty poor, 45 total passing yards and two interceptions. Uh, so not a great start, but this was a guy who was a, you know, mid four-star prospect, one of the highest-rated players on the team. Um, so you expect he's got a full off-season, you know, on a college campus for the first time. Last year, I'm sure, very, very difficult to, to get himself settled, especially as late as he came in. But he's got the talent, I think, to push Noah Vedral, who has played a lot, you know, 34 career games played across three programs, 21 starts, including the last couple of years at Rutgers. Um, but he hasn't you know, quite honestly, done a ton as far as production goes. Um, so you have to think that the upside of Wimsett, uh, he's, he's going to have an opportunity, I think. So it's going to be uh, interesting to see how much better uh, he looks as a redshirt freshman than he did as basically a high school senior last year and the the few, you know, moments that we were able to to see. Um, because I think if if Wimsett does win the job, then Rutgers' ceiling is probably a little bit higher. Uh, their floor might be a little bit lower, but I think their ceiling is, is going to be a little bit higher. But it's going to be tough. I mean, other than the secondary, the defense is, you know, bringing in a, a – uh, basically the front seven is almost completely new. Um, they lost one of their best players on defense. We talked about a few weeks ago when the news came out that Mohamed Toure, who has, uh, you know, led the team with four and a half sacks last year, uh, one of their most, uh, you know, productive pass rushers uh, in terms of pressures as well, suffered an injury in the spring that's going to keep him out probably the entire year. It, it's uh, it's going to be tough, especially when they lost basically their entire linebacking core, uh, starting linebacking core to, you know, end of eligibility, uh, multiple starters on the defensive line as well, guys declared for the draft. So the, the offense, there's certainly some things to like, um, but the defense, again, other than that secondary, which is experienced and brings back four returning starters, Man, it's life is going to be tough in, in the Big Ten East for Rutgers. Um, they could certainly win all three non-conference games, even though we have them as a double-digit underdog to Boston College. I think that is a winnable game for Rutgers. But the fact that they have to play you know, Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Michigan State every year, and then they also don't have a great 
you know, pull from the West this season, Iowa, Nebraska, and Minnesota. Uh, so the schedule is really, really tough. And, you know, even though the non-conference is, is certainly manageable, Wagner and Temple being the other two games, it's going to be tough to, to find three other wins, even if they are able to upset Boston College. Um, you think, is it Maryland, Indiana, and who else? Um, so we have 3.84 projected wins, only two of those coming in conference. Um, Maryland and Indiana look like the best, you know, the best bets. Uh, but it, it's it's going to be tough. I, I personally don't expect Rutgers to make it back to a bowl game. Um, the the defense especially is is going to be, I think, the, the troubling unit. Um, and maybe they settle down a little bit, you know, those first four weeks and, and kind of come together, gel, and, and give them a, a chance. But they have to go to Ohio State on October 1st, and Ohio State might score eight. I don't know. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's going to be tough for Rutgers this year, I think. Javier, any love for Rutgers? Do you, do you have hold out a little more hope than Nick? Or are you no. Yeah. I mean, I love Greg Schiano. Don't get me wrong. Love Greg Schiano. I, I hope he does amazing things. I hope Rutgers wins a national title before Tennessee, the way they ran him at the top. But next year is just not going to be that year. You know, next year is not going to be a year where I think they improve on their record at least. Now, they might look a better outfit in some respects, but defensively, they're completely depleted. And like we talked about, the only pulse that they had on defense coming back is not going to be able to play this year. Uh, on top of that, they're going to have an offense that, that was okay last year, but I don't think it's going to be good enough to carry a bad defense. Uh, on top of that, you talk about, like Nick said, they're not conference schedule isn't a cakewalk. Boston College, Wagner, Temple. You expect them to beat Wagner. You expect them to beat Temple. After that, their next win might not come until November. Let's just say what it is, right? Maybe, maybe – Maybe Nebraska's just hit the wall and they beat them in a, and they've got it labeled here as a blackout game. Maybe, you know, they just are able to beat a bad Nebraska team who, once again, Scott Frost can't get to, you know, get their heads out of their butts. Who knows? Like, I, it, you just have to create too many scenarios for this team to replicate what they were able to do at five and seven. Uh, so it, with their DK win total being only four, I'd probably bet the under if I was a betting man, just because I don't know where you see they see, see them get their wins. Um, like I said, maybe it's Nebraska and, you know, they have a bye week and then they play Indiana. Maybe they're able to beat Indiana. Both of those games are at home. But those would be the only two Big Ten games out of their last game in the season against Maryland that I would even give them a shot in. And I don't know what the numbers say, Nick, but like I said, it's, it's just really difficult to see them winning more than one Big Ten game this year um, with what they're doing. But Greg is doing a great job on the recruiting trail. This year's class ranked 33rd overall. This is his highest ranked recruiting class in 10 years. Matter of fact, the last highest recruiting class, he was the head coach in 2012. Uh, so, you know, in that class ranked 23rd. So I think he's doing a good job. He's starting to get kids to come up to, to Rutgers, which can't be an easy thing to do. Uh, at the end of the day, it's hard to recruit in Piscataway. That's just been proven for, for, for a while now. But if you're able to get some of the, you know, the three-star, four-star talent that does exist, up there in the Northeast, and you're gonna have you, and that's what he's been doing. So that's a really good job from him. He was able to bring in a couple of four stars in the transfer porter. Uh, excuse me, in that recruiting class out of New Jersey, out of Pennsylvania, heck, even one out of Florida. So I, Greg's starting to get it going in the right direction. Just this, this year in particular, this year may look worse as far as record is concerned. But like I said um, earlier on in this episode with Hawaii, 
Don't necessarily focus on record this year when you're looking at Rutgers. Look at maybe the, the, the players that you know are going to be a part of the future of Rutgers that look really good this year, especially on defense, because your defense, in my opinion, is going to be expected to be pretty young at the very least in snaps, if not, you know, in, in years on the field. So so look for Rutgers this year to, to show you what they could be in a year from now, where, rather than worrying about what they look like this season. Unless, like we said, unless, like I said, they do, you know, win and beat, uh, you know, those teams I was talking about earlier in the middle of their season. And they do finish like a five and seven team again. Let's go over to number 113 here, Ball State. Uh, they had some of the best returning production last season uh, after winning the MAC championship in 2020, but they fell down to six and seven capped by a 51 to 20 loss to Georgia state in the Camilla bowl this season, Nick um, they're on the other end of that. So maybe returning production doesn't matter to this team since they had a lot last year and slumped, but they go down to 127 out of 131 that doesn't feel like it's going to be a good return for them. Is there any optimism here for Ball State, or are they going to slip pretty far down here? So they play in the MAC, so it's difficult to to get too down on a team because you know it's not like the the talent gap is very big. And talked a lot earlier in the show about how I thought Akron could really make a push, and it feels weird to to think that okay, you know, Ball State as successful as they've been. And even though last year was disappointing coming off the, uh, the championship in 2020 and with the experienced roster coming back, uh, you know, it, it, it seems strange to think that this is a, a team that's going to slip down into the part of the standings that we're used to seeing Akron and Bowling Green and, and those types of teams. So I, I want to, you know, caution myself from being too pessimistic, but, Ball State's got some serious questions. I mean, you know, quarterback first and foremost. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's not that Drew Plitt was the greatest quarterback in, in you know, Mac history or, or anything. Um, but he's a guy who made 39 starts in his career over the last, what, three, four years. Um, they did not go into the transfer portal for a quarterback. They basically you know, handed the job. I'm sure he, you know, had to win it, but it seemed like it was never in doubt that John Paddock, who's the fifth year senior, um, who's been Plitz backup the last four or five years, uh, or excuse me, three, four years, is going to be the guy. He's only played in five games in his career, only 48 snaps last year, uh, last season. And he's just an unknown, just don't really, you know, haven't seen him. It's hard to expect that he's going to step in and be able to play uh, at the same level as, you know, a Drew Plitt who made 39 starts and also made, you know, plenty of mistakes, made some head scratching uh, decisions at times, but he, he does have some quality or, or even above average playmakers. Uh, Carson Steele as a true freshman last year, uh, did a lot of, of really, really good things at running back could be one of the best running backs in the Mac this season, certainly could get a heavy workload if John Paddock is, you know, shaky a little bit at the quarterback position. And then they also have maybe the best wide receiver duo, certainly in, in the conversation in the Mac in Jason Jackson and Johannes Tyler. So even though they lose, you know, the, the, um, he's at least the school's all time leading receiver, uh, Justin Hall might have been the Mac lead, maybe even in an NCAA record, if, if memory serves, uh, for like catches 
uh, streak or, or something. Um, great player, obviously, but even losing Justin Hall, they're going to be, I think, in pretty good shape at the receiver position. Offensive line, a little bit of transition, bring th- uh, three starters back. But even though there are, you know, some high-level performers, a couple of uh, one-time All-Mac performers on the defensive side of the ball, and then Clayton Cole, a senior, might be in that conversation this year. There's a lot of turnover and inexperience on the defensive side of the ball. Ball State ranks 125th in defensive returning production. Um, They bring back only one starter at all three levels, although – that you know, uh, Cole is the starter at linebacker, and then they do get Brandon Martin, who is the 2020 MAC Defensive Player of the Year. Missed a lot of time with injury last year, but he's not technically a returning starter this year. So you know, they their defense has that that sort of uh, top end guy at each position group. Tavion Woodard at you know defensive end, Cole and Martin at linebacker, and then uh, Amici Uzadinma at, at corner. But the depth the experience even in the rest of the starting lineup is a major concern for Ball State. So, you know, a lot of winnable games, much like we've been discussing the last, you know, 15 teams, first 15 teams this year, and that includes three non-conference games that are very, very winnable. Murray State, Georgia Southern, and UConn. Uh, Every game in the MAC is going to be basically a, you know, single-digit Projected point spread uh, are you know two touchdowns at most, um, but you know the schedule doesn't set up real well. They have to go to Miami of Ohio, to Toledo, to Kent State, to Central Michigan. So some of the tougher teams in the MAC have to play on the road. Their MAC opener is Western Michigan, who's you know one of the top two most talented teams in the MAC year in and year out. And then they get Northern Illinois early in the max schedule as well, the defending conference champ. So because of all the turnover and, you know, because of the lack of depth, because last year was uh, a bit disappointing and it's going to be difficult to find reasons for optimism based on that. Um, I, yeah. I mean, we, we project five and a quarter wins and certainly bowl eligibility is not off the table, but it, it would not, really surprise me if Ball State uh, is a team that continues to slide a little bit. And this is a four and eight type team at the end of the season. And I think I forgot to mention the the win totals uh, from DK for the last two teams. Uh, Rutgers was at four. We technically have them under the four, even though we have them at four and eight. Once again, percentages a little bit under four um, for Ball State here, Xavier, the DK total is five and a half. We're under on them too. We have them at five and seven. What do you think about Ball State? Can they get to five and a half wins, six wins to become a ball eligible team? Or are you pessimistic as is Nick? Well, I I love their non-conference schedule. I'll be 100% honest with you. I think Murray State and Georgia Southern are very winnable ball games. Um, obviously, Tennessee is not in my opinion. But if you can get to – if at the beginning of the year, if you can start off – you know, two and one in your non-conference. Uh, obviously, Western Michigan is in there, so they get a very early conference matchup. But if you could do that, they also get UConn. 
I think if you can win your non-conference games, that's three wins right there. So you're not necessarily climbing up a steep mountain, in my opinion. Uh, if you're Ball State, um, I'm not so sure that they'll be able to get back to a bowl game. But I think they can absolutely reach five wins, um, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, like I said, you're able to get to that three-win mark with your uh, with your non-conference games. And like we talked about earlier with the MAC being as volatile as it is, is it impossible for them to get two wins out of the remainder of their max schedule? No. You know, this is a team that very well, I'm, I'm not saying they're going to beat Western Michigan, but can start off the year three and one, uh, you know, going to get, going into Northern Illinois. Uh, so I, I genuinely look at this, this Ball State team, and yes, I absolutely agree with parts of what Nick said. But what I will say is they have probably one of the softer non-conference schedules of any team we've talked about in the podcast today. Uh, with the teams that I just named, Georgia Southern, UConn, and uh, Murray State. So I, I don't see – go ahead, Nick. No. Uh, we'll get to it, but uh, okay. just just wait till the next uh, one. Uh, okay. No, 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 that's perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, no, I, I don't see why they, they can't go ahead and pull off a five-win season uh, when you've got that. On the recruiting trail, this is a team that, you know, has – for everything that we talked about, they lo- them losing definitely didn't really dig into the transfer portal all that much. They only brought in five transfers. Uh, Amir Abdul Rahman being probably the guy that was the biggest uh, transfer coming from Vanderbilt, the wide receiver, and Kyle King, uh, the Michigan State defensive lineman. Uh, other than that, they brought in a punter uh, from Indiana, which two four seven. I got a, I got a bone to pick with you, and, and then we'll, we can move on. Rate the punters; they have stars really? too. Hey, I'm sorry. If you're if you're gonna be a recruiting website, rate the punters. Okay, you're, you're you just filibustering because we've got a shot to get under two hours. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I knew that was coming. Yeah, uh, I was waiting I, for it. I knew that because I made a snide comment. Uh, uh, earlier. Oh, it's it, there. Yeah, it, it completely <laughs> ignored me, and then I started thinking, mm, we're kind of trending. We might hit that under. So, um, uh, but but look, um, uh, I, I Ball State. With the the consensus is we're out, right, Xavier? We're, yeah. 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 Uh let let let's go to uh 112 FIU and FIU. They uh won the home opener last year, and that was the peak because they lost the next eleven in a row, all eight conference USA matchups. They only played in two one score games, neither of which uh, came in its final eight in conference play. Uh DK has them for three wins. We have them. At six and six. So I think the question is here, uh, Nick, FIU, one and 11, lost 11 in a row. They rank 120 through returning production. They have a new head coach of Mike McIntyre. Why do we think the Panthers are going to get better this year? What is it? Well, Mike McIntyre is part of it. Uh, former national coach of the year at Colorado. Um, that doesn't factor into our projections because it was past the last three years, but has been on staff at Memphis the last couple of years, Ole Miss prior to that as a def- uh, defensive coordinator. And, you know, has been part of some good staffs there. Uh, brought a interesting and, and potentially uh, high upside offensive coordinator hire in, in Dave Yost, uh, former play caller at places like Texas Tech and Missouri. He was also on... Mike Leach's staff at Washington State for a little while. So the offense is going to, you know, they're going to open it up. That's great news for Tyrese Chambers. Uh, they brought in Gunnar Holmberg, starter at the P5 level at Duke, to play quarterback. Even though they lose Devontae Price, um, reading a lot of good things about Lexington Joseph, who has, you know, made uh, all-conference USA um 
team in the past as a return man. The offensive line is going to be an issue because they lost four starters, three of which went into the transfer portal and transferred to places like LSU, Purdue, and Colorado State. Um, Defensively, a lot of turnover as well. Nevertheless, FIU, and doing a little bit of a callback to our, our 2021 previews here, FIU is our UMass in 2022. And if you know what that means, that's that's the schedule just sets up so We talked about UMass last <laughs> week and how uh, everything came down for them to get that over one and a half the last week, and they just couldn't. And they just couldn't. Two FCS opponents on the schedule, a lot of other, you know, New Mexico State in that season finale, couldn't get it done. FIU is, is our UMass this year. So six wins, probably a bit crazy. I, I, our win total projections are, are a little optimistic and I think it's just hitting me over the head because we, we changed it up a little this year and started with all the lower ranked teams first, instead of just catching them, you know, conference by conference, like we did last year, but lining them all up. It's like, man, we're, we're just a little too high on a lot of these teams. And FIU is certainly in that category. But uh, when I interrupted Xavier when he was talking about Ball State, how about this for a non-conference schedule as a group of five team? Bryant, the uh, FCS, the, the second best FCS program in Rhode Island, Texas State, New Mexico State, and UConn. That is, I mean, we talk about an NCAA dynasty. You're, you're doing Fair a enough. rebuild. That, yeah. That's what you're setting up for, yeah, for that enough. first year. Uh, and then they play in Conference USA, where, again, no no team is a guaranteed win, in my opinion, in Conference USA. And that includes Western Kentucky, who they open up with on the road September 24th. That includes defending champ UTSA, who they've got at home on a Friday night in mid-October. Those are still, yeah, they're going to be underdogs of more than a touchdown, but it, it wouldn't be crazy for FIU to win either of those games, in my opinion, especially if the offense clicks. I mean, Tyrese Chambers is one of the best receivers in college football. Uh, incredibly explosive last year to the point where it was, you know, uh, unsustainable, just his big play uh, ability. However, I expect his role is going to change a bit under Yost and, and the new uh, coaching staff overall, probably get a few more targets in the middle of the field, maybe catch and run a little bit instead of just, you know, bombs, uh, which it seemed like were, were a big part of his success last year. Plus they, you know, supplemented the receiving core with a couple of transfers that might help take a little of the pressure off Tyrese Chambers. So if that offensive line, which, is a major, major question mark. I mean, one of the worst in our uh, position rankings, 129th nationally, uh, is how our offensive line uh, rankings, uh, you know, set up for, for FIU. But if that offensive line, it's a lot of unknowns, a lot of new faces, comes together, gives Gunnar Holmberg a little, you know, have some time to throw, Lexington Joseph a little uh, room to run, then this is a team, especially with the schedule, that can, you know, pick up a few wins here and there. Uh, defensively, a lot of turnover, but you know, Devon Strickland from the interior of the defensive line was highly productive uh, last season. Led the team in uh, tackles for loss, pressures, sacks. Uh, he is back. You know, there, there's a lot 
missing, but um, you know, from a one-win team, you know, we, we've talked about it before. Uh, it's not necessarily returning production might not be the biggest thing to worry about anyway. So uh, the the talent level has taken a little bit of a hit. FIU has been a team that's rated pretty well as far as roster strength at the group of five level in recent years. They've been a little bit of a frustrating team underachieving their talent level. Um, that's probably not going to be as much of an issue now that they're in the 100s in, in our roster strength ratings. But I think the the new coaching staff, I think, you know, one big time playmaker and a couple of uh, complimentary pieces on offense and a really, really manageable schedule. You know, don't be shocked if this FIU team is four and eight, maybe even five and seven, maybe even, you know, go into UTEP in, in late November or home against Middle Tennessee, who obviously we've got FIU ranked higher than Middle Tennessee uh, at, at the end of November with a chance to get bowl eligible. It, it would not shock me, um, though you would think based on last year and based on the returning production, it would. This this is a team that we're going to be consistently pretty high on week in and week out, I, I would expect. Uh, Xavier, any love for FIU here? I mean, uh, Nick laid out how they get to six and six. Are you going to invest in that stock? Listen, I, I'm going to say this. I think I said to you in, in the last episode, Scott, no, 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 no. It's not terrible. No, but, I, but whenever you start with listen, anyone listen, uh, you're about to lay out why exactly what was just said is not going to happen, right? Fair so enough. But, but I, I said it to you in the last episode. I, I can't remember what for, but if Nick, after this season, says you're the UMass of our team this year, that's just another depth. That's, that's just another, you know, uh, uh, you know, a death note again, you know. So if FIU somehow goes three and nine or two and ten, and and they and they drop the game to Connecticut, and you know they barely beat Bryant and New Mexico State, and and we're looking there like what happened? We're gonna blame Nick because for the second year in a row he has cho- he has chosen a team to be his UMass, and and we all saw UMass go under their projected. I just I just do what the numbers tell me. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's not my choice. I'm. I'm uh, <laughs> yeah, contractually <laughs> obligated. It's a good soldier right here. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm just following orders. So, so yeah, I, I'm not going to go as far. Nick, by the time he got to the end of the FIU conversation, I think was talking himself into more wins. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to. I was trying. That defense is scary looking. I, yeah. Go. I'm, I'm going to stay at four. <laughs> I'm going to say that they win their non-conference game. Oh yeah. Six but, is ridiculous. But yeah. four. <laughs> Forest, absolutely. I, lo- I I love this backtrack because because at the end of the FIU, if you're an FIU fan, click out at like one forty seven thirty, and you'll never hear this part. Uh, but but yeah, like I, I think it's I think that's hilarious. But no, I think FIU should win the non conference matchups. Um, and a four te- a four win team this year is not out of the question. Obviously, that'd be a massive jump from what they did last season. Uh, but I'm not going to be able to go on the limb and say they're going to be anywhere near a bowl game this year. Uh, on the recruiting trail, they've been okay. Uh, they have one of the higher transfer ratings of anybody in this episode uh, with a 74. Uh, they brought in eight transfers, uh, three from Syracuse, which I thought was very impressive. Uh, Dino Babers losing a bunch of guys up there, uh, you know, uh, all of which were are three stars or better. So that's, that's a plus as well. Uh, so FIU for me, 
you're absolutely right, Nick. I'm glad you stopped me when I was talking about Ball State having the easiest non-conference schedule. That goes to FIU in this episode. Uh, when you're able to get Bryant in New Mexico State all about a month apart, good job to the schedule makers for them. But four wins is as far as I'll go. I can't believe neither of you laughed at my Bryant being the second best FCS team in Rhode Island comment. You know, <laughs> I thought that was so, pretty good. Uh, so, All right. Sometimes they're winners, sometimes they're not, Nick. If you, you know, gotta explain uh, the joke, I guess it's not good. That's okay. You yeah. know, uh, yeah, probably no. not. But let's go to. Many, I don't think many of our listeners even know Rhode Island football. To the the last team. Rhode Island beat UMass last year. <laughs> they better know. They better know. They better know that beating an FBS team. Uh, One eleven. The last team that we're going to talk about today, Ohio. Uh, Tim Albin surprised first season as head coach started slow. Ohio opened up 0-4, fell to 1-7 after three straight one-possession uh, lost games. But the Bobcats showed life late with two wins in a 3-9, and 3-5 uh, and five in the conference debut. Five and a half is their over. We got them at 5-7, and seven, so we're under on that. Um, but, Nick, Ohio consistently has overachieved its roster strength from our rankings under uh, Frank Solich. After a step back, can they get back on track and overachieve again since we have seen them do it in the past? That is the question because, you know, going back to our conversation last week about Navy and about, you know, how our projections struggle a little bit with um, – you know the military academies because the the roster strength numbers the recruiting numbers just aren't aren't good uh ohio is actually in that same mold um they obviously you know don't have the benefit of of being able to bring in uh dozens of players but they bring in a lot of two-star underrated or excuse me un unrated players year in and year out to the point where Ohio ranks 128th in overall roster strength, 127th on offense and 123rd on defense. And that wasn't really a problem under Frank Solich, but after he retired somewhat surprisingly prior to last year, you know, for Tim Albin, it, it did seem to maybe be a little bit of a problem. Um, they also lose some of their better players. I mean, you know, top, uh, running back leading rusher, DeMonte Tuggle, is gone. Uh, there is some excitement about the redshirt freshman, C. Bingura, who uh, apparently won the you know top spot on the depth chart in the spring at running back, even though O'Shawn Allison uh, has been there for a while, was a one-two punch at times with Tuggle. Uh, the wide receiver core, they brought in August Pitry from Rice, who's kind of a under-the-radar under uh transfer coming in guy with some starting experience and made some big plays last year and one really really under the radar uh transfer who i'm intrigued because you know didn't necessarily do a deep dive on uh sim week uh wigless perhaps my apologies sam if, if that's incorrect but a walk on it say Ohio that one State. with confidence nick i did you, i did you, you half stepped into that one and and tripped over. You got to go in with all that confidence from before. You're right. You're right. It's uh, <laughs> my mistake. Uh, but you know, didn't play much at Ohio State. Was a walk on. Twenty eight snaps last year. Seven career games. But I just you know sometimes when you're inputting transfers in and out in our team profiles, uh, you see a little bit of whatever article you know it, it came from. And apparently, uh, Sam Wiglus. 
that's what we're going with. Uh, was like all star practice squad guy. Like apparently incredible catches. You know the the uh, receiving core that they've got at Ohio State. He was like everybody's favorite. Just you know, uh, sounded like a lot of guys really really excited to see what he can do going to a place where he's going to have an opportunity to play. So I'm, I'm intrigued. I mean, he's, you know, last year, six year, fifth year eligibility type guy, uh, not much of a track record, but maybe a name to, to file away for, uh, you know, an action toward the end of the year. But other than that, I mean, that's, that's the kind of player who's coming in, in addition to, you know, recruiting relatively low, not very many, even three stars, you know, Curtis Rourke's got some experience, great bloodlines, uh, but hasn't quite translated to all Mac quarterback or even at times he was splitting carries uh, or, yeah, carries, but also, I mean, snaps uh, with Amari Rogers at quarterback last year. You know, offensive line, not real high on, on the experience, uh, at least as far as returning starters go. Defense, you know, struggled at times, right? 106th in defensive team performance last year. So they there are plenty of opportunities you would expect for them to go into the transfer portal, but they're not even, you know, really bringing in big name guys, not even numbers, really. Um, do have a, a, a projected starter, Dante Hunter II, on the edge, edge rusher uh, from Purdue, P5 transfer there. But other than that, you know, backup quarterback from UCF, Parker Navarro, August Pitry, probably the biggest impact transferring in from Rice, Wigloose from Ohio State, and Hunter, who didn't even play at Purdue, but, you know, projects probably as a starter or at least a major contributor at Ohio. Not a whole lot of, you know, incoming uh, players that, that you expect to make an immediate impact, at least based on their raw talent or, or the talent potential uh, expected coming out of high school. So Ohio's kind of a difficult team to project because they have a track record of success. I was a little surprised to see that win, co- uh, win total from DraftKings at five and a half because it's a little like Ohio's kind of a legacy program because they were consistently a winner under Solich. But I'm I'm wondering if that, you know, has started to turn. And last year was uh, not not necessarily things souring, but more of without Solich for whatever, you know, whatever he is able to do to elevate um, that team performance above uh, the talent on hand, maybe that magic is just gone. And and this Ohio team is going to be playing a little bit close to uh, a little closer to its talent profile than it did. So I was not surprised that our uh, projected win total came in under five and a half. Certainly, this is a team that could get the bowl eligibility playing in the MAC, a couple of winnable non-conference games. Uh, but I was pretty pleased to to see that we were going to be under that five and a half, uh, just barely. But I, I think we're on the right side of this one. Xavier, thoughts on Ohio? Are you uh, you thinking that they can turn around, or uh, are you thinking they deserve to be in this area? Maybe they're going to be a little lower than this. 
Yeah, I think that this is a team that we expect to be here next year, and in the mm-hmm. same in the same area. Um, you know, they don't have the the pleasure of playing a softer non-conference schedule. You get at Penn State and at Iowa State in back-to-back weeks. That's never fun. Uh, yes, you get Fordham. And, and Florida Atlantic, uh, who we haven't talked about yet, should be a, a, a fun game. I'll put it that way. Um, and once again, it is a volatile conference, the MAC is. So this is a team that very well could climb out of, of the basement that, they're, that they were in last year and make a push for it. I just don't see that from Ohio this season. I think there may be a year away. Um, I think last year, you know, when we talk about a lot of teams on our list, I think what's very indicative of a team that like Ohio is like one possession games. A lot of these teams in the that we've been talking about one possession ball games. Um, so you go, well, the ball bounced a different direction. Very true. Uh, so with with Ohio, the only thing about that is even if the ball bounces in a different direction, there's still a five win ball 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 club at most in my personal opinion, uh, and that would have been games against Central Michigan, Michigan and Buffalo, which they lost by less than a possession in both. Uh, and maybe even Duquesne. So maybe they do get the six wins. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, when you look at Ohio, they're also a team that didn't really hit the transfer portal at all, 152nd ranked. So they must love what they've got mm. coming back. They must love what they've got coming in because you look at that, and you also look at the fact that they only had 11 letters of intent signed. So total they brought in 14 people. Uh, so they, they must love what they've got at Ohio. So I'm not so sure that they're you know going to be able to lean on transfers like some of these other teams that we've talked about today. I'm not big on Ohio. I would go with the under the, the draft king total of five and a half. All right. Well, look, that is going to wrap us up. And we just came in under two hours on this pod uh, with the music and stuff. It might be just over two hours, but uh, we will see. But that is it for us. More previews coming next week. And uh, remember, you can follow us all on Twitter at Bogman Sports for myself, at CFB Winning Edge for Nick, at Xavier underscore Trist, T R I C H E for Xavier. We will see you guys then. Take it easy, everybody.